Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Fallout Podcast, episode 27, the AKA Nation Bend Friends Orange. Um, no funny names today. It's me, it's Phil, it's Alistair, it's Ezra. Phil, did you want to speak? Just realise you can put your hand up inside. Oh, yeah, there's <laughs> all kinds of digital it. stuff, isn't it? All right, so stories so far. This is special. We're going to look at those four records. Stories so far. Previously, Circa 79 to 84, Pistols Inspired Friends, Brahma, Smith, Baines, Friel, Sea Pistols, Sit on Single of Year, Four Year, 79 Witch Trials, Smith, Paul, at Burns, Brahma, Friel and Baines are gone. Step Forward Records, Genre Post Punk, according to Wikipedia, Long, Ominous, Plinky, Fear, urban horror, we said. Manager, K. Carroll. 80, Dragnet. Smith, Riley, Scanlon, Hanley. S. Lee. Brammer, Burns and Pollock, gone. Step forward. Post-punk, says Wikipedia. Lo-fi narrative, says us. Produced, Grant Showbiz. 81, grotesque after the gram. Smith, Riley, Scanlon, Hanley S. Hanley P. Ooh, rough trade. Post-punk, experimental rock, art punk, says Wikipedia. We say country and northern rockabilly, snarky satire, finger-pointing, upbeat narrative, Phil Rigby, witch trials, dragnet, grotesque, go. It's pure gold, man, isn't it? This is, uh, it's, the, it's the start of the dream. This is, uh, it's, it's all the good stuff, probably my favourite stuff, to be honest with you. Beautiful. Then, 1982, Slate's same lineup, EP, post-punk, art-punk, lo-fi, says Wikipedia, Rough Trade, Titan Fierce, says us. 1982, Hex Induction Hour Hex, Smith, Riley, Scanlon, Hanley S, Hanley P, Burns, Second Stint, Classic Two Drummer Lineup, Camera Records, Who's That? Post Punk, says Wikipedia. Monochrome, Classic, Well Behaved <laughs> Post Punk Songwriting, Number 71 in UK Charts. 82, Room to Live, Disappointing, undilutable slang truth, says media, same lineup. Long, satire, snark is back, up tempo, abstract, post punk, lo fi, noise rock, experimental rock, says Wikipedia. We say kraut rock slash psychedelia. Alistair Aspinall, slates, hex, room to live. Go, 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 Johnny, go. What about them? Hex, hexy, hexy, hexy. Great answer. It's a tough one though because they're all bloody brilliant, and yeah. it's probably as Phil said, his selection was his favourite era. I think that's my favourite era. Mm. Room to Live got a lot of love from us, but not from the rest of the world. But it deserves it. Slates, oh good lord, what were they thinking? Now, nineteen eighty-three, perverted by language, rough trade. Smith M, Scanlon, Hanley S, Hanley P, Burns, Smith B. Ooh, Riley's gone. Post-punk, says Wikipedia. Long, abstract, poetic and psychedelic. 1984. Wonderful and frightening world of the fall. Same lineup. Beggar's Banquet. Prod. Jay Leckie. Guest. G Friday. Short. Layered. Upbeat. Poetic. Not narrative. Satirical. Number 62 in UK charts. Ezra. Perverted by language and wonderful, frightening world of fall. Go, Johnny. Go, 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 go. That's the best sandwich you could hope for without a filling. It's pretty damn good, isn't it? So that's seven albums. We're on to LP8, This Nation's 
Saving Grace, 1985. Lineup, Smith, Hanley, Scanlon, Smith B, Simon Rogers, handpipe professional, and Carl Burns. He's still there. Phil Rigby, what do you have to say about this nation saving grace? So, <clears throat> I think this is, um, there's a few things that I was going to say to start off with. First is, this is kind of where my interest started to wane a little bit in the fall. When I was when I was getting into them and working my way through systematically through the albums, um, this is this is the album. And I've been trying this week, I've been trying to think about why that was. And I... Because it's not the songs. The songs are great on it, and they're, they're they're really solid. You can still hear them developing and growing as a band. And obviously, Bricks kind of finds her feet a bit more in the in the, in the lineup and, and what she contributes. But I, I I think it's the only thing I could really put my finger on is the fact it's the production really that I think I find a little bit disappointed about this album it just it's a bit too I kept thinking about a compressor pedal and it, oh, it takes the ends off the sound and it, it takes the rough bits off and it, it kind of feels a bit too compressed this is an album and my my other <laughs> frustration as with all of these shows that we've done is trying to find a thread to kind of follow through the the history of the fall which is just a fool's errand I think I really enjoyed listening to these songs uh, individually and when it came to listening to them together as an album I thought they made more sense and the thing that surprised me the most was um, I actually found Bombast which we gave a bit of a hard time to last week, week yeah yeah I think so um, to be a bit of a key to understanding what they're getting at because I think this is the most can album but the more that I've listened to it this week, the more that I've... I mean, the obvious thing is Damo Suzuki on there, but you've also got stuff like Bombas, which I do think is is just like um, uh, Full Moon on the Highway. And there's there's another track on there as well, which is just not jumping to my mind at the moment. But, I, oh yeah, it's um, What You Need, which I just thought as well was a bit of a play on uh, I Want More by, by Cal, which is the biggest hit. And I just, I think Kraut Rock is the way to understand the album. The thing is that it very, very well behaved in terms of uh, mm. the fall. Like you said, there's no real sharp edges. Whether or not that's to do with Simon Rogers, the classically trained musician, being on board, I don't know. It did get to number 54 in the UK charts. Wikipedia call it pop punk, art punk and art rock, which is interesting. And it was around this time they started to collaborate with Michael Clark. So they did that... Um, all grey whistle test where he's dancing with his bum out. But tight, post-pop, upbeat, fun. And uh, yeah, it's a fool's errand trying to pull any threads, but this kind of looms above the rest of the catalogue uh, in terms of popularity. So this is this and heck, probably why. It's a bit too nicey-nicey for us. I get it, the, the, because it's it, it's got a really nice opening and it's it's got that sort of sinister start to it, which you kind of know and love from, from the fall. And then it's... It's it's quite a poppy album. I think it's there's very there's, there's lots of obvious catchy poppiness on there, isn't there? And they do set these weird kind of right turns every now and again with it. So I can understand why people with a capital P enjoy it. Bricks's influence really come into the fore, I think. Alistair, what's um what's your take on this nation's saving grace? Nineteen eighty five really like it. I mean, it's uh, following on from what I was saying, it's probably my favourite era. You can hear still quite a bit of that in there, even though it is a bit more of a poppy 
kind of fall that's developing. And you can see the evolution as it goes along. I mean, right, you mentioned the production, Phil. Steve Albini always says it don't matter who your producer is, it's the engineer that matters. And that was a chap called Joe uh, Gillingham, or Gillingham, uh, who we know bugger all about looking at the, the sleeve notes. But yeah, production on side one is John Leckie, side two it's Leckie, Rogers, and Smith. And I think that's the side, well, yeah, like, uh, on that side, you've got like got the uh, quantifier, uh, my new house paintwork. Um, and, and Dan Suzuki and those are all shit oh. and there's not really one on here that I'd, I'd slag words uh, and, and the, you know the, there's a, a definite development stuff like LA sounds nothing like they've done before whereas like Gus of the Quantifier is a bit slatey uh, but yeah I think I think it's a great album it is everything's just a, a little bit different it's showing a lot of direction they can go in but also it's very consistent in sound when we get into the Friends experiment later and, and a bunch of other later albums that are not quite as consistent in terms of songs or in terms of sound but I think this is an easy way in for a lot of people and yeah you can't really fault any of the tracks but that second half I think that's where uh, the rot started to set in with Leckie and Smith where uh, Smith wanted him to um, to to master it from a tape off his dictaphone and uh, Leckie wanted to go high end. What, what does Tim 3 think about this nation's saving grace, Phil? Well, he's tapped through on the old Ouija board. It's a classic. While not being quite as good as the hype around it would warrant, in my opinion. Although I don't like the production as much as I like how things sounded pre-beggars. There is a comfortable fizz to this album, and I think some of the more complex layered tracks do sound great, particularly Paintwork and Damo Suzuki, the two highlights of the album. I love the opening and closing duo. Do you think they nicked the idea from Neil Young? I think it's a great walking album too, so Al should be impressed. Interesting. <laughs> it's like he's paying attention. So um, My My Hey Hey and Hey Hey My My on uh, Russ Never Sleeps. Uh the Neil Young one, maybe. Unlikely that it's a reference to that, though. Uh, I've been reading some of the, the things that have been said of it around the time and since, and, uh, you know, The Guardian was saying, uh, operating just on the edge of mainstream at the peak of their accessibility and yet strangeness, thrillingly subverting the notion of what pop music could be. I tell you what, those guys, they know their rock and roll. Ezra, what do you think of This Nation's Saving Grace? Phil was saying earlier uh, that he listened to the fall through to, to all of the fall chronologically. And I tried the same thing. And I only got as far as perverted by language. I think it's a real fucking slog with any artist to listen to all their work chronologically, regardless of the merits or lack thereof of said artist. Yeah, This Nation's Saving Grace is one that I didn't actually, I hadn't actually heard until I was preparing for this podcast. Of course, I'm familiar with a lot of the songs on it, um, and several of those songs are some of my all-time favourite full songs, like Damo, uh, Paintwork, Gutter the Quantifier, smashing, smashing songs. And it's an interesting album in that it's been, I would say that it's comparable in terms of its kind of like media image to uh, an album like Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth. But for me, Daydream Nation is not the album that I want to hear if I'm listening to Sonic Youth. I would much rather be listening to Sister or Evil. However, with this, I think it, you know, I think a lot of the praise is merited. I think it's a fantastic record. I think it stands up really well. I do have similar qualms about the kind of 80s-ish 
production. But yeah, I think it's fucking great. In my research, I was doing a lot of deep dives into um, reviews of the albums from the time period. And eventually I wound up on Amazon looking at the uh, user reviews. I was trying to find someone who doesn't like this nation's saving grace. And I did a, a Google search for who doesn't like this nation's saving grace by the fall. And uh, it was this Amazon review that came up. And I'm just trawling through the uh, WhatsApp chat to find it. So I'm sorry to keep you waiting. It's fine. The magic of editing will make it fly by. <laughs> oh, with a tumbleweed. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, feel free to make windy noises. <laughs> As which kind. Mind you, it's all right, we're all in different rooms. Ah, here we go. So, yeah, here we have a one-star review for This Nation Saving Grace on the Amazons. It was listed in among the group Saving Grace. It was not the group, not even close. I have no chance of listening to this group, nor do I know anyone who would even like this. All caps, search was for the group Saving Grace. Um, and I believe that was by Judy in America. Well, I wouldn't want to judge all Americans by Judy's standards, but... Um... <laughs> You know, caveat emporum, isn't it? Here, I'm going to read you a statement each from reviews, and you can tell me how right this person was. Phil Rigby. Many hardcore fans disparage this great record on the grounds that it, create, it contains tunes. Proper, full-on, grown-up rock, this record is to the fore what clear spot is to Beefheart, the perfect starting point for listeners who might be put off by their more challenging work. And what do you think of that? Yes, it's uh, it's it's wrong on on many levels. I don't think any fall fan would have a problem with tunes or melody. I think it's uh, as we've shown week in week out. There's loads of poppy stuff that we really like by the fall, and I also take exception to clear spots being <laughs> singled out in the Beefheart catalogue. It's uh, there's it's not the album I would have pointed out as being a low point. Oh well, Alice, to listen to this one. Furious Kevin on Rate Your Music. It was Bricks that saved the group from perhaps reliving the horrendous Room to Live sound forever. Bricks began to emerge as the band's lifeblood. Her twangy minimal guitar lines established a new fall sound 180 degrees from where they were heading with Riley. Yeah, he just fancies Bricks, doesn't he? Um... You know, what about Amley? What about Amley? <laughs> exactly. He was a good-looking lad, wasn't he? What about Amla Shipman? And, and here, Ezra, Andrew was left cold. Andrew said, Frustrating to find the slurred, almost drunken vocal style a distraction rather than a decoration on each track. Andrew's a fucking wally. Not all of the lyrics are slurred, and I'm sure he wasn't drunk every time he performed in the studio. And they're arguably the best thing about the fall. So he's just... Left Cold is the damning uh, review he left on Rate Your Music. Pitchfork said this Nation's Saving Grace was the 13th best album of the 80s, whilst the NME placed it at number 400 <laughs> on his list of 500 greatest really? albums. The NME somehow thinks there are 399 better albums out there in the world than this Nation's Saving Grace. It says more about the NME than it does about anything else. Burn. John Doran on the Quietus. 
He said, Smith builds a song to the standard he requires just for other people to turn up and complain about the lack of respect he's shown to the finished product. What, what do you think about this? This is a return to him having a single drummer as well, this album, isn't it? Mm. You're right. It's Hanley's left. So Back here's in your box, O'Leary. After Wonderful and Frightening, I think the van got broke into and Smith blamed the band. They stole uh, the drummer. They stole <laughs> Paul Hanley, and he's never been found since. So they, uh, Han, both Hanley brothers <clears throat> left in a huff because they were blamed for the, the stuff being nicked out the van. And um, Paul Hanley never came back, but Steve Hanley took a, a few months off because his son was born, uh, I think, <clears throat> prematurely. And uh, he took some time off, and that's when the panpipe, classically trained panpipist Simon Rogers came on. So, Phil Rigby, you're right. There's one drummer on this album, <laughs> Carl Burns. But it just, it, I, I just go back to that sort of slightly thinner sound on this album than the, than the previous stuff. And the, the other thing that I was that I didn't mention at the start as well is that 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 well-worn phrase of you know sort of fighting for the heart of the battle. I do feel like there's a bit of tension on this album in in what direction that they're going to be going in. And to segue slightly into the next album, it it feels like the next album is a bit more consistent in terms of what direction they're going to go in. I'll give you that. I'll say that this one. If it is consistent, it's, it's consistent in a, a more poppy, bricksy kind of sound. And I think Ben Sinister then goes back the other way, as is their want after classic albums, after which trials we get Dragnet, after uh, Saving Grace, we get Ben Sinister, after Hex, we get Room to Live. It's a bit of a kickback. But I think the next one's very much a Smith, Dower I think uh, Saving Grace is well, the easiest for me technology on there because on LA you've got the um, kind of keyboardy, programmy type stuff, which I don't think has ever been present previously. So that's another, you know, way that they're developing. It's a bit of a weird one, LA, isn't it? It's it, it, it does stand out as being a very different track to anything they've done before. So it was just, I think it's really ahead of its time as well. It's, it's one that I've commented on it before, but there's a few songs that they did that just sound like they're, they're at least 10 years sort of ahead of the time. Yeah, if you listen to this and you didn't know it was 85, you might play some of it a good few years later. And I think, yeah, it is the first kind of sequences are coming in into yeah. studios. And I think that's Simon Rogers' stuff. I think that's he was bringing that kind of stuff in from what I, I can see. Reminds me a lot of stuff like uh, it was bobbing around in the early 90s, like Curve. Apparently, I remember they did a gig with The Fall and I read an interview with Smith where he said like their idea of a sound check is pissing around with a wind machine for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on then to the next album. Like last time we played some little clips in between. Do you want to choose one of those um, from... 85, uh, 86, and uh, let's have a blast of uh, Smithy and Co. talking about stuff. Was well, If you've been going for a, a few years, they recycle the questions or recycle your answers. So they're like, they're like waging war on you with your own words. I'm told I use too many words, but you see, what I have is a very original approach to writing because it's not educated, but it's not, it's not jargonised, I don't think. It's something you've got to remember. You're writing music, and you've got to get you've got to have a word that puts a chill up everybody's spine and stuff. Yeah, you know, doesn't matter what the word is; it's the way you use it with the music. 
Oh, he's so arrogant, but he's spot on, isn't he? Yeah, you got to have a word that sends a shiver up people's spine. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it works with the music. It's like a magical spell. It is. Beautiful. And uh, they don't do those kind of uh, uh, interviews anymore with people where you're just in their house. Isn't that from the that weird film, though, called... Is it Perverted by Language? I think they're barely certain that's yeah, on. That I think that is his living room. Um, he looks fucked. He looks like he's got panda eyes. This is the part of the era where people start to say the the drink and drugs start to have an effect. They've kicked in. Maybe, but he's still very lucid, isn't he? And I, I, I've found myself... I know exactly where he's coming from, and I think he's exactly right in what he's saying. It's very lucid and insightful, what he's saying. So it's not, it, it, it's not like he's... I think in some of the later interviews where he's more playful like maybe charitable and call it that it's a lot harder to read to kind of put your finger on where exactly he's coming from and i think in that he's being a lot more straightforward and playing with a bit more of a straight bat very candid so would you say this nation's saving grace is the fall's last classic album um absolutely not no they had a lot of great stuff to come and some of it i'm sure i haven't even heard yet there's a lot of talk around this era now, these four albums, that this is the end of the golden period. Even what Mark Fisher was saying in that essay that uh, it's the first three albums, three, four. Uh, so he's, he's basically saying they're well past their prime. Others might disagree. LP number nine, Ben Sinister, 1986. Smith on the photocopy machine doing his front cover after a nice fancy painting on the cover of the last one. Alistair, you've got it right there in your hands. What do we need to know about Bend Sinister and its Xerox tones? Um, yeah, I quite like Bend Sinister. It's got a dirty ass tone to it. Uh, part of it recorded at Abbey Road, part of it recorded at Yellow 2 in Stockport. Uh, John Leckie again. I think it might be uh, same engineer as well. Because uh, he definitely, it's that sort of like combination of with George Ellingham on the Wonderful and Frightening as well. But yeah, some great tunes on there. And like, it's getting into the, some of the, the more poppy stuff. I, I do like, you know, you've got Terry Waite says uh, the side bottom inspired US at 80s, 90s, uh, shoulder pads. So just some great tunes on there, uh, including Mr. Pharmacist as well, which is uh, one that me and Phil did in a daft little pop up band once. Um, Pharmacist, as we talked about the other week, the first cover, especially on an album by him. And uh, yeah. started an avalanche cover. I like that. And the the, the uh, inner sleeve. So that, this will be a great one for the podcast. Like a manga, like a uh, Smith dressed up in medieval garb. Maybe that's just because I'm looking at it on a. It looks very thing. similar to that guy who used to do the drawings, Fred Grant Poe stories. That English artist. Yeah, the yellow it. book fella in it. What's his name? Is it Aubrey something? Beard. Aubrey Beersley used it's to do the, kind of, uh, the black and white kind of um, Art Deco kind of style, mm. Klimt-esque kind of, kind of take. Yeah. Um, shoulder pads jump sticks out a mile like a sore thumb. So this is the one where I started saying like, all right, you know, I'm, it's a it's a stupid kind of uh, road to go down, but I'm going to, what, what would I do if I was putting the track list in for this and say ship over um, shoulder pads um, and, and maybe uh, US 80s, 90s over to the next record and purr this down a little bit. And um, But it has a, a really dark kind of vibe going through the whole thing. 
and like we said a bit earlier, it's, in my mind, it, it leans a bit more back towards a smithy, a smithy sound, or maybe Scanlan and Hanley, and not so much of that shiny uh, bricks feel. This was um, yet yeah, recorded in Abbey Road, as well as uh, in Bury and Stockport, with John Leckie, and got to number 36 in the UK album charts. So, success. We've made it. We made it, finally. <laughs> Uh, Carl Burns was fired just before they started sessions. So the Hamley had gone the one before. Burns came back. He was fired again. And uh, Hamley, Paul Hamley came back for a few songs, totally going against what I said about 10 minutes earlier, uh, before Simon Walsencroft did the, rec- the record and he stuck around for the next decade or so. Julie Adamson did some of the engineering on this. Um, mm-hmm. and then she, it was another 10 years or so before she came back and joined the band. Um, Leckie and Mark Smith argued during the recording with Smith complaining he'd always swamp everything, put psychedelic sounds over it. Leckie, for his part, drew the line at Smith's insistence that some tracks were mastered from a standard audio cassette that he had. Um, Ezra, Ben Sinister, does this little nugget do anything for you? Yeah, it does plenty for me. I mean, moving away from the kind of grayscale tinged with pink of the this nation's saving grace and into just muted monochromatic stuff again and in my mind it makes it a weird kind of companion to Dragnet in some ways it's a fearful album in some respects and it's odd because it manages to maintain that quality even though it's got the resolutely upbeat shoulder pads on it and also Terry Waite says which is fairly chirpy if you ignore the subject matter um but yeah it's a super interesting album and it's so kind of muted and doomy and in fact it's one of many inexplicable things about it is that on the back sleeve they've got part of the doomsday payoff triad and to the best of my knowledge this is the only thing the only time that the doomsday payoff triad is mentioned within like kind of you know the whole world of the fall so I, I suppose it was just a, a weird uh, brain fart of um, Smith's <laughs> that this was going to be the part of a, the first part in a cycle of doomsday stuff. Um, and then he went and did the Friends experiment, which I suppose is a different kind of doomsday. But yeah, on the whole, I really, really like this album. And it's really, really strange that it had so much chart success. I can only think it's because, you know, they were building on the buzz from This Nation's Saving Grace, which is the kind of album that I would expect had a stab at some form of chart success. You know, the people who bought that told their friends and said, oh, yeah, you know, you should check out this band. And then they released this. So all of the friends of the friends go out and buy Ben Sinister and are like, what the fuck is this creepy dirge? <laughs> and that's, that's that for success. <laughs> <laughs> it is, round. but this was the first. The next six albums went top 40. So the next uh, six yeah, well, four albums no. went top 40, um, more or less, n- not counting uh, a couple of the things that I won't mention. But uh, more oh, or I less. suppose, yeah, goth was also big at the time. So Goth was big, and this definitely yeah. had a bit of a goth kind of lean in it. And um, like many of the albums, the sleeve really does a pretty good job of representing the stuff that's going on inside. Did seem we've talked before about how the artwork always seems a bit crappy and thrown off, but somehow it seems to always connect with what else is going on there. Uh, Nabokov, 1947 novel is where the title came from, and it was released uh, in Australia and the USA as the Domesday Payoff Triad. 
What does Tim Three think of Ben Sinister, the Falls album from 1986? Well, he's scratched into the psychic rice purple. The best of this batch, in my opinion, sludgy and muddy, but effective for the overall more sinister tone of a lot of the songs. It also has a cover I don't hate, although it is played to death and two versions of the same comedy song, which I also actually like. Although I love both Living Too Late and Autotech, I think as an album, it works far better with the vinyl track list in this time. Gross Chapel is a masterful centerpiece and looms large over the proceedings. Top tier fall. Beautiful. Philip, what about Bend Sinister for you? It's a great title, isn't it? It sets the mood straight away. I've not I've I've read some Nabokov before, but I haven't, I haven't read that one, so I don't know what the link is with the with the novel. But uh, I can imagine Nabokov being a favourite of Smithies. Um, very stylized and slick and intelligent writer. Um, probably one that we should do as a, a future and past really coming up. But um, the album I find really surprising for a few different reasons. It does feel like a bit of a return to the bass sounds and influences and things like that um, when I was listening to it. And I think as was right in terms of, apart from the shoulder pads and terry where it says bits it, it feels serious and it feels a bit sort of um macabre in places and darker and it is i'd made the same i don't know whether it is the black and white thing but i'd made the same association with dragnet and i'm always surprised at what year this album came out and um, because it feels like it should be an earlier album and, it, and not particularly because of the production or anything like that although i do think production's better on this album i think it's um bit closer to what you what you want and being able to hear what's going on and it not be too kind of washed out um or poppy a bit more personality to it all and i wonder how much simon wilsoncraft is the, the new drummer had to do with that as well whether that was contribution or just being well behaved and, and doing what you're told but I, I really really like this album i was looking at um so i play my stuff on spotify which obviously brings up those little rows of green hearts by the side of stuff so i can at a glance see kind of what my overall take of these things is and I think there's only one song on there that I hadn't liked as I was going through it, which I think it's such a strong album, but it's it doesn't seem to be as memorable as something like Hex or or even some of the later albums. But it's it's really good, it's really solid, and there's there's nothing to complain about on it at all. It's not as many choruses, and I think other than Mr. Pharmacist uh, and maybe the the cheekiness of shoulder pads. That's we were saying it kind of you, you almost forget what's on it after you finish listening to it. It's a really good listen. Every one of those songs is is got a really solid groove, really enjoyable to listen to. And we've looked at stuff like Rod already on the show and, and even some of the B sides like Autotech Pilot. It suffers in terms of its perception, I think, from being right after this station saving grace. But uh, it's certainly no less of an album. Ben Sinister is a story of philosopher who tries to keep himself remote from the politics of his country by reasoning that he is too well known a figure to be hurt. He watches his friends disappear and seems to have little concern for what happens to them. So it is a story of dystopia. Yes, and, and I got something from Far Out magazine that said, the choice of the title was an attempt to suggest an outline, of, an outline broken by refraction, a distortion in the mirror of being, a wrong turn taken by life. 
Nabokov does his best to withdraw from the forefront and Smith follows suit, creating a space for the instrumentation to flow. I think there's also a link between Smithy himself because he's he always strikes me as one of those people that sees the artist as being outside of society. You know, someone on the outside looking in, pointing fingers at everybody. So yeah, seems pertinent. Here we go. Alistair, what do you reckon about this? This is the closest they ever strayed to goth without ever being as hoary or gloomy. The unorthodox mastering process resulted in a murky but ominous sound, with even Scanlon's usually trebly guitar sounding muddier. His album is more bass-dominated than ever. I don't think it's that gothy. I mean, I disagree with you a little bit uh, from some of the stuff that's been said, because it's the poppiness that, that really stands out to me on this one. It is a bit of a dark pop, like, but it's not Bloody Sisters of Mercy, is it? Thank God. No, but it's more like Lee Hazelwood than uh, Hooray for Everything, isn't it? <laughs> God bless Lee. How about this one, uh, Phil? Pound for Pound, Ben's The Sinister is one of the four's most fun and funniest <laughs> albums. Savage and brutal, a reminder that even at the peak of the Falls pop crossover, they remain scabrous and uncompromising at heart. It's, I, I feel there's a misstep in that line somewhere. <laughs> How do we get from the start of that to the end of that? Fun and funniest, dense, bleak, humorous, real deep dives into Smith's mind palace with songs it's so cryptic that, and esoteric. It starts off with a song that's literally ripped from the pages of some weird tale of some horrendous thing crawling right now. It's, no, it's, I disagree. I'm with Alistair. We're in the grumpy camp, obviously. Good, good, good. Apparently Terry Waite's brother rang up Beggar's Banquet to look for clues when Terry was missing. And this is obviously the song was written before oh, yeah. Terry was taken. Here we go, Ezra. What about this one? Monster Shark Club from Devon says, Almost at the point of balance, the bombed-out garage rock of this nation-saving grace took Britain's took British post-punk to places where they'd never been before, while Ben Sinister finds the fall exploring ways out of this territory. Is it a way out of the trap they set for themselves with this nation-saving grace? I think that's hyperbole, isn't it? I mean, did they say bonged out garage rock or bombed out? Bombed with a with a B, but bonged out. Sure, go for it. Well, yeah, neither actually. Um, I mean, Marky e. Smith was a well-known critic of the uh, Devil's Herb, and I don't really find that much garage rockishness in this nation's saving grace. I mean, I suppose there's a soups on of that stuff. Um, and I don't think that they put themselves into a cul-de-sac on that album either. I, I feel like they explored a lot of territory and it was all good stuff. I think that like uh, Ben Sinister has maybe got more of a cohesive mood to it. But yeah, you know, I, I think they were just part of the ongoing evolution of a very good band. Well, Monster Shark Record Club in Devon will might have a lot to say on that. Monster Shark, we await your response. Anything else to say on Ben Sinister 1986 before we move on? We mentioned briefly Simon Wollstonecroft's uh, emergence. He's one of the blind spots for us. He's stuck around for about 10 years, but we don't. we almost never mention his presence in the band, maybe because he is quite a polite drummer and a nice man. Anything else uh, to say on this album? Well, sorry, Wilson's craft. Like in his book, he, he talks about his uh, struggle with heroin. 
Apparently he did have a heroin addiction for most of the time he was in the fall. <laughs> I heard him talking about that. He didn't mention it though. Kept it to himself. The only thing I was I was going to say is, in addition was um, about US 80s, 90s being having a similarity to LA off the previous album. So because I, I, I did think to myself, I want you can see Smithy sitting back and listening to this nation saving grace after they finished it and, and kind of wondering where that was going with, with LA and whether that was part of his uh, his qualms with uh, the direction of travel. But with US 80s, 90s, it obviously wasn't because it's it's and it and they go on to explore that kind of sound, don't they? That sort of almost stadium rock I'm tempted to say but that that sort of bigger expansive kind of pop sound anyway and, and the, the kind of drums and stuff was filtered through some of the the hip-hop at the time your public enemy and, and nwa kind of stuff i think that were using those big kind of bombastic kind of drums and quite minimal production but yeah eventually they went that route but an interesting album and um, one that doesn't get as much love but we have put a couple of the tracks through, so it, uh, it will stay with us for a little while at least. So before we move on to Friends Experiment 1988, the glorious mess that it is, why don't you give us another blast of something around uh, 1986 era? The Bricks one? Yeah, that one's good. So that's, uh, that's 85, that's when they're on the, the, the tube talking to that Scottish lass that was always on the... Uh, what was her name? Oh, I mean, you're just playing for yourself. No, it's not self-indulgent. I mean, uh, it's just... You know, it sounds all clichéd nowadays because people use it as a selling point, but, I mean, uh, I think it's really important that the fall exists, and that's always been the viewpoint on it. We're a bit sort of bloody-minded about it. I mean, I think the fall's great because it's a really unique band and it's completely original, and it doesn't sound like any other band. It's itself, and it's really different kind of music than you know, all your synthesised pop and everything. I think when it's I was, important. I mean, when I was a teenager, I mean, I always thought uh, accessibility was something to be spat upon anyway, you know. How long can you carry on, though? Because... <laughs> would, you mean, would you like us to break up now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, we will. Really. <laughs> see, if you're in a business where it's all in the pursuit of novelty, I mean, that's, cool. that's fair enough, that's cool. But, I mean, no, we're not. No. By the very nature of you being something original, surely it becomes more and more difficult as you get older to keep making new statements. No, that's all the problem is actually to stop going out, out on the edge. The problem is to actually um, bring stuff out that is actually comprehensible to the public, you know, which is what we always manage to do. I don't, I don't have to sort of add frilly bits to my lyrics. I have to cut a lot of them out. He's very, again very lucid there, and he's he's pretty sharp. And Bricks is just like effervescent with clearly her love for for being in the fall, and um, she's like a little puppy. Good on her. Soon go. Unfortunately, that didn't last very long, which brings us to the Friends Experiment, nineteen eighty eight. Even though the front cover has that horrific family photo with uh, now joined by Marcia Schofield, who is um, who was Bricks's mate. And she came on board with the keyboards. Uh, everyone else more or less is covered over with words or has their face kind of half cut off and just Smith glaring in the background. So this, uh, again, recorded at Abbey Road. By this time, Leckie had gone. So um, Simon Rogers and Grant Shobies were producing. And uh, UK chart number 19, first top 20 album for the fall. Uh, alongside the singles, There's a Ghost in My House, Hit the North and Victoria, all released just before the album and hit 
also the UK charts, aka gene crime experiment. Ezra, what about the friends experiment? Is well, for me, this is the, to say. Yes, I do. I do. Um, this is the first real kind of wet fart of a fall album. You know, we, we get into this weird kind of limpid blue sound. It's really not that good at all. I mean, it starts off with two tracks that could be album openers. And, you know, they, they, they work on their own terms as a kind of entree, but like two entrees and I'm already bored. Um, and then we get a hotel, which is extremely boring by fall standards. Um, then we get a cover version and then we get the first good song of the album. And it's the end of side one. Which, is, which is also a spinal it's really horrendous. song. You know, that's in its favour, though. That just shows the great cojones that the fall had, that they would take a spinal tap riff <laughs> and turn a great song into a greater song that was completely different. And yeah, and then on the second side, it, it's it's also mostly kind of bollocks. There's the bar, boring steak place song. There's very little that's good on it. And it's and the, the cover is also the first utterly shit record cover that the fall put out. It's just irredeemably bollocks. Um, I mean, maybe there's some kind of, you know, cryptic information about the band's interrelationships there, but that's not really what I want to see on an album. And yeah, you know, the strangest thing is, is that around this time they were producing and releasing a lot of fucking really exceptionally good music. Many of us have said on the WhatsApp chat that this could have been their best album if they'd have taken out some of these tracks and put some of the stuff that was languishing on B-sides and just released on single only, it would have been an absolute fucking nuclear bomb of an album. But instead it's just this and it's, you know, by those standards, it's terrible. By any other standards, it's all right. And that's not really what I'm hoping for in a fall album. Yeah, it's quite a sad one, this for me. There is, it has its charms. I'm a fan of Oswald's Defence Lawyer. Uh, Bremen, that guest informant, friends, athlete cured. So at least half of these tracks I like. But if you swap out the other half and you stick in Australians in Europe, Hit the North, uh, Twister, even something hey, like Michael Sinker's, a bunch of stuff there. I would have even, like I said earlier, brought over a couple of the poppier tracks off. Uh, ben Sinister, like Shoulder Pads, would have, would have sparkled in this context, I think. Yeah. The first misstep potentially, and I don't think that cover has anything more, is is hiding anything other than the faces of almost every member of the band. Philip, friends experiment, do your worst. <clears throat> yeah, it's okay. So it's, I think the clue's in the title. It's, it is an experiment and, you know, there's no guaranteed success with an experiment is that you kind of throw it out there and you see what happens. And that's, that, that's how it feels to me. Um, I think there's. I think it just about lands more than it falls over with the tracks. Uh, I think on the balance, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff here which is kind of left a little bit bemused at best with it. Nobody should be forced to listen to get a hotel this much in such a short period of time. Was what I was left thinking after listening to this a few times. Um, and still just not getting whatever it was that they were trying to do with that track at all. But there's, there are some real high points on the album. There's some stuff that, that is absolutely glorious, but as, a, as an overall product, it's a bit of a mess and a bit of a, it leaves a bit of a disappointment after it's, uh, after it's finished. 
Yeah, and, and the experiment, but not in the sense that much of the music is massively experimental. So it's structurally experimental, though. The, the structure of the songs is, is quite... I've, I've spoken before to um, Tim Three about it, and uh, one of the things that, that he said before is that um, it's the, the experimentation is less to do with the noises and the, you know, the skitties and all that kind of stuff that we're used to and more to do with how the actual songs themselves are structured and the, the relationship between verse and chorus and all that type of stuff. What does Tim Three have to say about this album, uh, The Friends Experiment by The Fall? So he has daubed in various places around the house. Just a real stinker of an album. Get a hotel, Victoria, stay at place, and half of Bremen knocks are actively shit. As in they reach out of the speakers and piss on my feet. Guess Informant is a great track, and we get a few seconds of it before it buggers off again. Oswald is a good track, but really badly recorded, and the whole record sounds anemic. The only tracks I bat for are Friends, Carry Bag, and Athlete Cured. I find it annoying that they have so many other good songs around this time that they left off to stick on fancy singles or waste while delivering this wet mess. Why is the superb Markle Sinkers on a stupid seven-inch insert bar? Fair enough. And, you know, one of the things I I was reading is like everyone always talks about the bonus material. So eventually 2020 expanded CD edition, all that stuff was gathered together. And that dream that I had of um, being a double album in which you could ignore the fact that uh, Victoria's on there or Northern's in Europe which is Mark talking over a recording of Australians in Europe. Um, yes. Alistair, Friends Experiment. That was one at the time that when I bought it, it kind of put me off a little bit. Um, it, it doesn't kind of have that strong sound to it. Uh, there's some good stuff on there, though, you know. Um, like Caviar Bagman's all right. Uh, Athletes Cured, as we said, Spinal Tap. Um, Bremen Nats I do like. And uh, I don't mind Oswald Defence Lawyer. It's all right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's not the strongest one. It's good to see that it's got the uh, second part of the uh, Monopoly trilogy in there. The first being My New House, second being Get a Hotel, and then he went to jail after he had the fight on stage in America. Um, so, you know, that was quite amusing. But... Yeah, it does. It's it's lacking. Um, that's something, and, and uh, you know, I can't really put my finger on it. Whether it's a sound, whether it was like uh, the lineup were unsettled at the time, whether or not it was just like pressures to turn out something dead quick. Uh, but you know, there's a couple of strong ones on there, but it's just not got that consistency. Yeah, and I think that's it. It's the first one that doesn't really work as an album. It's just a bunch of good tracks that that then's kind of slapped together. <laughs> Thankfully. The Curious Orange and Seminal Live follow that pattern. So we've got the next three years of albums doing the same thing. Louder Than War says, The Friends Experiment was their most accessible at the time, but now seems underrated and an unloved black sheep. Those that had followed the band since live, but the Witch Trials and Dragnet were getting frustrated with the more polished and commercial sound, as well as them apparently selling out. What about this, Phil? In hindsight, it's clear the fall's most vital work was already behind them. Considering the redoubtable charms of 85's Nation 7 Grace and 82's Hex Induction Hour, 
those albums continue to hold as much relevance as they do respect, unlike this. Yeah, I kind of begrudgingly agree with that, I guess. it's. But I, I, I think it's what you've just said. It's the first one that doesn't work as an album. It feels more like a, a collection of songs that have been thrown together um, rather than something where any love has been given to the actual listing and how they're, how they're being set out with each other, how it, how it sits as a sum rather than the, the number of its parts. Maybe, maybe. Ezra, what about this one? Stereo Grum's Robert Ham Chalks it up to the feminine energy that came when Bricks joined, but you can feel the larger holes being poked in the masculine facade of the group with the introduction of keyboardist Marcia Schofield. I think that's nonsense. Marcia Stereo Grum's Robert Ham doesn't, Ezra. Well, good for him. Marcia Schofield is undoubtedly a wonderful member of the fall, was a wonderful member of the fall, but her presence isn't really felt by these ears on the album. As to masculinity and femininity within the sound, yeah, I don't know about that either. I, I think Bricks had already, well, the fall were feminized from the get-go. They've pretty much always had a female member. And so, yeah, I, I just think that's... Brendan, what's your favourite Marcia Schofield track? Oh, what a great question. I agree with Ezra. I don't think her presence is massively felt. There's not. She's not a keyboard wizard in the sense that if you listen to the stuff that Eleni does later, she's clearly pivotal. I don't think the keyboards at this in this era massively stand out. So a trick question, maybe. I thought around the era of um, Curious Orange, I was like, oh, there's the keyboards coming through here um, and on the version of New Big Prince and stuff. But then I was like, I can't actually hear, hear anything. So I watched that Tony Wilson thing. She's banging away in the background. So I think, unfortunately, during her time, it was mixed quite low. Yeah, sadly, nothing jumps out. You? I think Alistair was trying to get in there. He's, uh, he's a big Marshall fan. Alistair, no, what? tell us more. I, well, all I was going to say, I think the most prominent that you, you hear Marsh Schofield on a fall song is probably Billy's Dead, um, where it is like the kind of part of the backbone to the song, the, the, the keyboards on that. And it's very un understated, very kind of like minimal, but really effective. And one of those ones uh, is probably on uh, Phil's uh, Romantic Smith uh, list. It is. I think it's top top billing, to be honest with you. But it's out of all the female members of the band, I, I, she's she's not as um, as obvious within the mix, is she? Like Lenny or Julia Adamson, or, or even some of the earlier stuff, where it's less synthy, more keyboard, isn't it? How about this one, Al? Lyrically, Mark had largely backed away from the impenetrable non-stop flow from the pre-Bricks output. He even attempted something close to singing. Friends is as close as the fall got to sexy. Uh, no, <laughs> I think we're all going, no, this is a load of shit. Journalists, they're no bugger all. I, I never really listened to the lyrics anywhere. Uh, you know, like bits jump out at me. But, you know, there's, there's some, you know, stuff like Bremen Nats on those. It was like ranting in German. That's that's like proper sort of old schooly Smith. You know, there's still sort of like some of the the traits in those, that, you know, like 
throwbacks to five years previously. You know, it's just less obvious and the production softens it out a little bit. Fair enough. Anyone want to add anything else to uh, Marsha Schofield's 1988 album, The Friends Experiment, <laughs> before we move on? Or is that Have we said enough about this, gem? I can't believe guest informed. It's not really come up in the conversation that much, given how much love we had for that track. Right, we did. Good. Great, great song. Um, when you play a blast of one of those other um, clips before we move on to the final LP of the evening, I am curious. How Certainly will, Brendan. Thanks, um, Philip. Do you want a Kiwi on? But yes, please. I will say about guest informant though that bit where he just comes in talking still cracks me up every time I hear it. It's like ten times as loud as everything else. About thirty seconds in, right? <laughs> and original Mark E. Smith of the Fourth. Good evening. Welcome back to Night Network, Mark. Hiya. You comfortable on the sofa? Nearly. Nearly. Now, just before we get started, Mark, how come you have maintained your credibility and originality over the last 10 years? I don't think too much about it, no. Yeah. I think we're just uh, consistent, no. <laughs> no, really, seriously, I've never like, planned uh, more than three months ahead, ever. I get, we, we, uh, we get a lot of people coming back to us. Like, they go off us for a year or two and then they come back. Yeah. You've been born in you've born in Manchester. You still live there. What's the what you know? Haven't you been drawn towards Berlin like you know a lot of other? There's too many artists in Berlin, I think. Really. So what's Manchester got then? It's got some identity for you. Well, it's a city, you know. It's where yeah, I'm so started, yeah, Manchester isn't it? City. Right? <laughs> yeah, I remember that now. Somewhere in my geography lessons. But your wife Bricks has just done a sign to Phonogram Records, right? Yes. Big record company. Uh, are you going to start getting rather jealous of all the limos and stuff ferrying her around, or are you, you going to stay with Beggars Banquet or? I, I hope she succeeds, you know, it's about yeah. time she brought some money in the house. <laughs> hope she succeeds. He's divorced about six months later. Nice white jeans there from both of those lads. Wonder Very they... dapper, wasn't he? Exactly. Quiffy, quiffy hairdo as well. That brings us now to LP number 11, I Am Curious Orange. Ali's holding up a copy of Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fox. Making a comment there. Um, lineup: Marky Smith, Brick Smith, Craig Scanlon, Steve Hanley, Simon Wollstonecroft, and Marcia Schofield back for a second album. Produced on Beggar's Banquet by Ian Brody, lead singer of The Lightning Seeds and co-writer of Three Lions. Um, that's it. <laughs> Internal strife within the band. Smith was increasingly dependent on alcohol and speed, and his marriage with Brick Smith was coming to an end. Apparently, most of the music was pre-written by Bricks and Steve Hanley, and then Smith added lyrics. Obviously, it was a uh, produced to go alongside the ballet, the uh, Michael Clark led ballet uh, on the 300th anniversary of William of Orange's usurpation of the English throne. I'm coming back to you, Phil Rigby. What do you think of I'm Curious Orange? I really like it. This is probably the album I've been least familiar with when we've done this. And I'm not quite sure why I never got around to listening to it. It's possibly because it, it, it came in that period that <laughs> this nation saving grace. I was really surprised I was listening to how confident it feels. I think it's, for my money, this is probably the most avant-garde uh, album that they've done, probably informed a lot by the purpose of it as a, as, as a, a soundtrack, the choreography rather than um, as a, an album as you would normally expect. 
there's some amazing bits on it. Like um, Jerusalem really stood out to me. I really enjoyed that. And um, the tracks that we've already done, I think there's only one that I've that I've not liked um, so far in the in the podcast. It's um, I, I was really struck with the confidence in it, at the, at the fact that they would t- take on a project or or Smithy would take on a project like this and feel completely comfortable doing it. And the fact that it it works very well, it's just the flow very well, and there's there's all kinds of weird detours into other musical interests that they've got. Like the title track itself is uh, is very different to anything that they've done before that. Certainly in in performance, if um, although the, the kind of philosophy I guess was the uh, that dubby studio is instrument philosophy. But I think this is a really enjoyable listen in a way that Friends Experiment isn't at all. And it, I, I do wonder whether they'd put so much material out over this this 12-month period is one of the reasons that Friends Experiment isn't as solid an album as, um, as you might expect. Yeah, and this one seems like whatever tracks were flying around, they were right for the album. And so there's a few odd ones in there, the CD fall win and prints coming in twice and and kind of things but it does hold together pretty well as an album as a concept based on William of Orange I don't quite get that um but I guess you have to be there and 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 see it it's kind of sad that there isn't a, a decent video of the entire performance there's the odd clip and photo but it would have been splendid to be able to see that similarly um recently that uh, Steve, that following five lad, he showed those clips of Luciani. Yeah, I'll show you some nice pictures there of the inside. If you move them around a little bit, we can imagine what Michael Clark's uh, fannying around in front of that giant hamburger. Al, what do we need to know about Curious Orange? Interesting LP. Uh, it is very different from Friends, um, but some really strong stuff on there. Like their uh, film St. Jerusalem's amazing. Curious Orange, they, they like really nailed the, the reggae stuff without it sounding like shit UB40 kind of thing. But then you've got like the real hard ass stuff on there, like uh, Wrong Place, Right Time, you know, the stuff that's like heavy riffs, Cab It Up, Big New Prince, with the, the choreography orientated stuff in there as well. I suppose like uh, we talked about uh, the Overture the other week, where it does seem like it's more of a, a, a thing though that's to, to, to fit in the, the dancing. But yeah, this, 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 it's just great tune after great tune. And I've not even mentioned Van Plague, which was uh, we, we discussed a couple of weeks ago, which again was a lot of fun. Yeah, Bricks playing guitar on top of a hamburger, giant hamburger, you know, can't beat it. And some of the other photographs are just proper bizarre. It's like, well, no, about six foot tins of beans, Heinz beans on there with a big shot of the Houses of Parliament. So, and the stuff that they bring in with the, the sectarian things in Scotland with, uh, you know, people dancing around wearing uh, Celtic shirts and bringing in the, the uh, dancing on, um, what do you call them? not walking sticks. Stilts? Not quite them either. When you break your leg, those things. Oh, uh, crutches. Crutches. Well done, Ezra. Well done. Locker boots. Locker boots, yeah. They're in fashion today. It's, it's really sort of 
ambitious. I can't think of any other band that would try to do something on that scale at the time. You've had stuff since like your Gorillas and uh, well, I suppose I mentioned actually last time it was uh, Tommy by the Who, but it was more of a shitty rock opera kind of thing. But um, not anything that was performed live in a, a, a you know a proper hybrid theatre, Sadler's Wells. You know, like uh, in launching LP, shame they didn't do the, the, the video, like you said. Yeah, and, and originally when we talked about it, it was, I was trying to push the idea maybe it was Bricks who was supporting him to go in this direction. But the more I've read, it seems like Michael Clark was just a big fan of the fall, and he kind of maybe he started putting fall songs in his show. And so he'd done a few kind of fall based stuff, and then he did that Lay Land stuff on Old Grey Whistle Test, and then he just went the whole hog and did decide to do the entire ballet with them, which from his side of things must have been a bit of a fucking stretch because uh, uh, I'm sure it didn't go down very well with the uh, with the ballet world, but it got him a bit of notoriety. Expanded and just there's a there is a video on YouTube of a, an ice skating troupe dancing to um, the joke, which is what is that off cerebral caustic, and that's great. And I, I started to really think, oh man, it would have been. I wonder just how elaborate and over the top the show was because the the photos look absolutely splendid but yeah who else is doing this so four albums in four or five albums in they hit hex and then eight albums in or so they hit the station saving grace and now they're about 12 albums in they're doing curious orange it's like for all the twists and turns what a what a trajectory hey ezra what a trajectory a trajectory indeed yeah yeah, um, you know, it's incredible after like the, the mind-boggling and perplexing and frustrating fumble that is Friends Experiment, which comes from an al- uh, from a band. It's an album from a band operating at the height of their powers, and they somehow managed to completely fuck it up. And then we go on to I Am Curious Orange, and they slam back on track, and it's fucking great. Um, I have to temper that a little bit with the um, sad confession that I didn't give it a proper listen. Uh, I got to um, win full CD 2080 and then I got distracted by some contingent crap. And so I haven't had the chance to fully enjoy this album. But I feel very, very confident that the quality does not dip too far below what came before um, that win full CD 2080, which which was quite an outlier, and I'm looking forward greatly to discussing it in more depth. But yeah, you know, you've, you've got uh, Curious Orange itself, Jerusalem, Big New Prince. It's got a glorious kind of like technicolor nectarine kind of sound to it. Even before I was a full fan, I heard the, the title of the album, I Am Curious Orange, and I was always, it was one of those things that just keep coming back into my head like, what on earth does that mean? What on earth? What what kind of statement is is trying to be made here? I am curious orange, um, and and so, you know, I, just such wonderful facility with language. I, I mean, I know it's been taken from some European art house flick, but even then, you know, I mean, if you're gonna steal, you gotta steal from the best European art house trash, right? So yeah, smashing. Wonderful. So actually, after after that track, we've talked about a lot of those songs. So Yes or Yes comes up, then Van Plague, and then Cab It Up. 
Lasnak, which is a version of Bremenak, and Big New Priest to finish out. Weirdly enough, I think of these 13 tracks, we've come across like eight or nine of them already in the podcast. So um, that's statistics for you, innit? That's randomness for you. Is this, is, we've mentioned Jerusalem a couple of times there as well. Is this the start of William Blake being a bit of an influence in his, his lyrics as well? I can't think of anything before this, which is obviously kind of um, influenced by Blake's poetry. Yeah, before it's the moon falls. So again. Before the moon falls, I think he paraphrases some uh, lines from Blake in that. Oh, okay. I must create my own regime or live by another man's. I, th- I think mm. I would have to check. But I think that's taken from a Blake poem. Yeah, no, it is. You're right, yeah. It's interesting because one of the um, quotes that I pulled out from someone says that Mez's infatuation with grotesque horror has been replaced with the mysticism of William Blake to provide the most personal yet far-reaching fall album as the collective unconsciousness lies frank discussions of Mez and Brick Smith's failing relationship. It's cool to see writing credits of Marquis Smith, William Blake on the, on Jerusalem and how he turns Jerusalem then into a complaint about someone mourning about banging their head on the pavement. I thought it was quite an indicative comment around how British culture was developing and that sort of litigious influence of American culture kind of coming in. That was how I interpreted what he was getting on about. He talks a lot about the uh, the um, collective unconscious. When we talked about the song Curious Orange, he basically anything that had any relation to Holland in any way, shape or form was fur game because he just put it all into the collective unconscious and um, throw that net far and wide. Alistair, what do you mean? What, what do you have to say about I-A-K-O? That's an it, yeah. I've already kind of mentioned what I thought about it, Brendan. Have I already asked you? Is this that point in the evening? Three, you've forgotten, Mum. Is it you? I haven't asked you. And Tim Three, now never forget him. What does Tim Three have to say? He says, patchy at best, but still well worth listening to. All the reasons I want to criticise it are perfectly understandable. However, if you treat as a soundtrack for the show. I think I would be a lot more fond of it if we had the visuals to go along with it, but the idiots didn't do that. I could happily cut it down to this Doggy's Life Jerusalem, Fall Wind CD, Van Plague, and cap it up. Oh, and Curious Orange, of course. Mm, very nice. Here we go. Uh, Phil, what about this one? Under normal circumstances, much of this could be termed filler but it hopefully makes perfect sense when juxtaposed with the actual dance. A strange kind of charm and admiration for having the balls to believe something so outlandish could work. Uh, I, I kind of get where they're coming from with that, but I, I, I don't think I could wholeheartedly agree with it. I, I think that there's um, there's enough snarly punk on there in, in terms of his delivery to, to keep it interesting. So the other thing I was I meant to say before, which I totally forgot about, was about... Um, it really reminds me of Jubilee, that, um, the, the movie, the sort of punk... German. Uh, yeah, the punk film, and it's... It, it strikes me as a bit of a sister piece to that in some ways. Do you know what, Phil? It, it reminded me uh, of different universes. Uh, do you like when you was doing that? That's what that reminded me of at the time. More than, like the, the only reference point that kind of made sense to, to me uh, in the... Uh, it's a play, uh, but there's the original music in it as well. 
Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. That wasn't an obvious uh, reference, but I'm sure we stole liberally from the fall in everything uh, we did. Really an aptitude. Yes. Why don't we remake 48 Hours, but mix it with Curious Orange? That was what we were thinking. Well, the next one's coming up soon. So if you enjoyed that play, then summer 2022, you're in for a heck of a treat. Anyway, Al, what about what about this? Um, a change for the fall, but not a change for the worse. It's inspired, strange and original with Mez at his most volatile and disjointed. I think that's the first time I've agreed with one of the uh, observations from a journalist. Who, who was that then? Uh, Western Nude on The Quietus. You're a fan of The Quietus, right? Good, good sight. Who knows? Uh, uh, Ezra, what about this? Ian Brody gives the tracks a bright, loud sheen, and this is the time when the fall mixed pop and experimental as very much one in the same, plucking beauty from carnage. Yeah, that's more agreeable. I mean, it's nice to know that Ian Brody has a reason for existing uh, on this planet, apart from the <laughs> diabolical fucking diarrhea that is the lightning seeds and the three lines on a shirt fucking yeah the proto-fascist toss of three lions i i do also really disagree with this whole fucking oh yeah you know suddenly the fall became a pop band after bricks joined they were always a fucking pop band i mean your man who we had on a while back i've forgotten his name he, he was an erudite and fantastic fella but he was saying, you know, to him, essentially the fall of folk. And I was thinking about that a lot. And my own kind of conclusion was that the fall are kind of heavy pop because all of their stuff is done in a pop structure. I mean, you know, with the earlier stuff, the guitars may be out of tune and heavy and distorted, but it's all in a pop structure. They were, to me, they were always a pop band. And that is essentially what they always were, was making pop music, but oftentimes quite heavy pop music, all the more wonderful for it. So, yeah, you know, that part I do not agree with. The rest of it, yeah, fair enough. But. I'll give you that. I think early on they did um, uh, pop stickers and pop chock stock and all those parodies of pop. And, and um, Bricks definitely gave it a different slant but yeah the kind of poppiness and the tunes were always there from the start i mean punk is pop music isn't it an innovative and rebellious strand of pop music yeah don't worry look at it I, I yeah, you know i mean to me it's kind of strange I, I sometimes see like the fall compared to the swans and i suppose there are comparisons to be made but to me the swans that's dirgy grotty music i mean you know i like it and everything but that's intense music right to me there was always light and shade in all of the falls oeuvre from the get-go you know i mean yeah there's a lot of darkness there but it's all done with this kind of jaunty oblique sense of humor and so many of the tracks are catchy as fuck which is not something i could say about the swans right and you can tell from the cover versions that they pick that he's obviously got a massive love for pop music as well, hasn't he? You know, funnel of love and all that kind of stuff that gets that gets used. It's it, I, I totally agree. I think it's it's it is pop music. Hi, oh, what were you going to say then? Did you have it was nothing of any consequence, Brendan. I'm sure it was, but um, 
we'll we'll wait for next time. Yeah, but I think Brixie's influence. I mean, she she did write some of the songs, like, but uh, it, for me, like Hamley was always the bloody backbone of, of the band at that era. He was the the the, the engine room kind of the, the powerhouse, like what was pushing it forward. It was always like bass and, and drums for me. Yeah, and a great pop sensibility in Hanley. Whether he's playing high up the neck when we talk about the hooky stuff, or whether he's doing the more dirgy stuff, it always bounced along and and um, and kept it that yeah that weird mix of heavy and light. And you said before, Phil, about the Fall being the only band who could make it sound heavy and dirty without distortion. Yeah, there's something special in them hands of Hanley, and he is a, he was a fool to let him go. So that's that. That's that. Next time we're gonna um, we're gonna take a few weeks off now, but not really because we're going to record next week and, and then pretend it's a new season and all that stuff. But um, whatever. Next special at the end of the next season will be Seminal Live, Extricate, Shift Work, and Code Selfish. If you want to start your homework now. Also, I have an update from Tim Three. He's managed to claw his way out of the sixth circle of hell, and he's now moving to Haslington. Oh. In many ways, not a step up. Um, <laughs> so that's the last last show of the year. We made it. That's our first year as Fallout Podcast. Hands in the air waving. And we'll see you all in 2023 or 4 or 5. The end. One of those number years. All right, chaps. So in real life, we'll come back next week and we'll do the first episode of, uh, of the next batch. And then, week after that, Andrew Aspinall, with all those according to Clan, two Aspinalls in one room. Oh god. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll, then we'll do like this for the Oh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you Alright.